Hello and welcome to the I Am Still Learning podcast, brought to you by CRED. My name is Ronan McDonald. I'm the founder and CEO of CRED. At CRED, we're asking the following questions. What if you could create three new habits? The habit of learning, the habit of mental health and well-being, and the habit of giving. What then if you could look back at the end of your life and see the legacy and the impact you have created? Our purpose is to enable today's actions to impact tomorrow's world. To learn more, please visit our website, cred.global. I don't think there was one big race where I didn't, like, beforehand go out and say, I'm never doing this again. I'm never putting myself through this again. Like, this is just hell. Today's guest is Garoad Towie. Garoad fits right into Cred's tribe. He's a lifelong learner, he's leading the way in mental health and well-being, and he's going to leave an incredible legacy. Garoad is a world champion and three-time Olympic rower. He's represented Ireland at the Sydney, Athens and Beijing Olympics. In 2005, he attempted to row across the Atlantic Ocean in a 23-foot boat with fellow Irish rower Kieran Lewis. On today's podcast, Garoad shares an incredible story of survival, the struggles involved in life's transition, and leaving a legacy. Cred is the Irish word for believe. Garoad is navigating life's peaks and troughs and shows incredible self-belief, and the feeling that the best is yet to come. Make sure you listen right to the end. Garoad leaves us with lots of fuel in the tank for a follow-up podcast. Garoad, welcome to the first ever Cred podcast. I'm delighted to have you as our first guest. Delighted to be here. So firstly, God help our Australian listeners. There's going to be no subtitles in this uh, podcast. So uh, in, the, in the industry, in the leadership industry, there's, uh, there's lots of far, far-side chats. So I'm going to propose uh, a far-side chat with a difference today, Garoad. So we're, we're going to go back to the west coast of Ireland. It's 10 p.m. on a warm summer's night. We're looking out over the Atlantic Ocean. And I'm going to go and get a couple of pints of Guinness and we sit down for a chat. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so Garoad, I recently read an, art, an interview with Brendan Cannon, uh, the former Wallaby and New South Wales Waratahs player. And he said, you go from being the king of your domain, where you know exactly what your job is, the influence you can have on your teammates. Then all of a sudden, you're standing on your own in a room full of strangers, which are your new work friends. And they're wanting to talk to you about how you used to be and all you want to focus on is what you want to become. Does that resonate with you? Yes, it does, especially now that um, I've been working with athletes in transition for about, I don't know, six years now. Um, It's quite a common theme amongst athletes that um, they're keen to move on and develop their new life, whereas, yeah, they keep getting dragged back to talking about their stories. But it's kind of interesting because at the beginning you kind of resent that, but then as you get further away from the sport, you actually realize that that is a significant part of your life and you are doing something special and something cool that people respect. And and so you'd learn to embrace it. And so that's um, that's been a kind of a nice piece for me that, that I have embraced that part of my life that I was trying to get away from um, as something that was really cool and, and, and really, really kind of appreciated what I did back then, more so than I did at the time. And as an outsider looking in, someone who's followed your career, someone who's an Irish sports nut, uh, naturally I'm drawn to just asking you about your career. Is it okay if we spend a few minutes just talking about that? Absolutely. Yeah, and then obviously love to get on into... You're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I may. I may. Well, we, mo- we both may cry at some stage today, Grod. So I'm going to start off with a question from my 10-year-old daughter, Alana. So she said, um, what inspired you to start rowing? Uh, it's a good question, actually, because... Uh, I came from a village with no river or lake in the middle of Cork. I mean, like it's the place where rowers do not you know, come from, basically. Um, but my brothers and sister um, started rowing at the rowing club five kilometers away in Fermoy. And uh, it was actually, they went down and they're quite a bit older than me. So I was kind of the youngest by five years. So my dad got heavily involved as well, um, coaching. Um, so every time... They were going to the club to train. I used to have FOMO and I just wanted to go with them, even though I couldn't. I was too small to row, too small to do anything. Um, so my kind of early childhood years were spent by the bank of the river, basically wanting to do what they were doing. And I couldn't wait for the day until I actually could do it. Um, so by the time I came around to doing it, I actually had spent hours and hours by the river. I'd spent hours and hours watching the sport. Um, started then watching it at the Olympics and stuff. And 
I, for some unknown reason, like I was a skinny boy. I was like small. I was, wasn't built for, to be a roar at all. For some reason, I had this inner belief I was going to do it. Um, I remember watching the Seoul Olympics. I was 10 years, uh, I was 11 years old. And um, I was like going, that's what I want to do. And uh, I literally went to school the next day and told people I was going to the Olympics and I got laughed out of the class. And but I just had this inner just something that was there telling me that that's, this was the path. And I just went hell for leather and I didn't didn't hold back at all. I trained my ass off from the age of 12 um, in pursuit of that goal and got there. So it was an, it's an interesting one. So it's a good question from your daughter, because, you know, for someone who's that age now, it's a nice lesson to learn. I just kind of went with my gut and and, uh, and it wasn't wrong. Yeah. And Gerard, what age were you when you realized I could be good at this? Uh, I think quite early. Um, it's an interesting one because I remember I I decided I was going to start doing it properly. Like, you know, when I was like 12, when I was, you know, I was going to really go for this training really hard. I remember after a week I said to my sister, I'm really I'm sick of rowing. I don't think I can do it anymore. And that was when I was 12. Um, but. I used to do a lot of watching videos of World Championships, Olympics, and um, I used to just imagine myself being there. And that was, I guess, my inspiration. And I guess, I, as I said before, like I, I just believed I was going to do it. And I think we had a, a, good, a great coach that was signed up to coach the Irish team, uh, a guy called Thor Nielsen. He came to Ireland in 1992. Uh, I was 15, and he saw me out rowing by chance. And he said, um, that kid is that kid's got the goods to do it. And when I heard that he had said that, then I was I was locked in, you know, from a personal perspective. <laughs> I could bring you back to that moment with your sister when you said after a week, I want to give up. What what made you keep going then? I just had this thing that it was it. And, you know, and it was sort of, you know, uh, I guess that's when it dawned on me that hard work is going to be part of the game and that I'm not going to have, it's not going to be this, these days when you're following your passion isn't like you're not having these uh, 10 out of 10 days you have like loads of one out of 10 days and it was nice to get that early actually i took lots of beatings as well early uh, from older kids in terms of like on the water not, <laughs> not at school <laughs> um which was actually really good because i used to win in my age category a lot and then i'd go race up up the ranks just so i could get a hiding um to just to teach me about getting beaten and because it's part of the process as well as much as uh, losing your motivation you know and so cork is obviously a hotbed of rowing in ireland and we it is we, now yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well were you the, the scene setter then was was there something around kind of trying to prove something to other people in parts of the country was there a rivalry with with dublin or anywhere else that yeah. would draw people on yeah yeah definitely yeah, you know what it's like in, like back yeah. home it's sort of uh, there's rivalry between you know teams that are live three miles apart you know so it's um you know the accents are different every every 10 k's in ireland you know so it's a very interesting country in that regard so it's quite tribal and rowing i think every sport's like that and rowing is no different um but what was interesting about rowing was that it was um a smaller community than other sports so you whilst there was that rivalry between clubs and between provinces and whatnot um there was actually a really nice community of people who actually respected each other for doing that sport because it wasn't the friendliest sport to be doing in ireland like i mean it was raining raining wind cold freezing cold most of the time and uh you know you had to be a kind of a bit of an outlier to do it in the first place so i think people who did the sport generally were the same kind of people you know i actually watched the uh, chasing perfection series on netflix with michael johnson have you have you watched that recently no i haven't no no so he talks about the impact that you know parents will have they will get you to training etc um, and that'll get you to a certain point but then you need the inner drive and there's no one forcing you to go to training you, you've talked about inner belief and inner drive can you put your finger on where that's come from in your life <laughs> That's a quite a loaded question, actually, because I wouldn't have been able to um, answer that like three years ago. But now I can give it a good stab, at least. I think it comes from being the youngest in the family by a long shot. Uh, there's, five, five, there's a five-year gap between me and the next oldest. Um, and I think it was probably my way of getting my footing in the family, um, that I became obsessed with the sport and wanted to prove to them that I was that I was really good at something and I think that's probably where 
that came from if I go I go far back, you know. Um that's probably where it comes from, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could spend a few minutes talking about that, maybe later. Yeah. <laughs> that's for all of us probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the other end of the family. I'm at the I'm at the the first child of the family, so I think I got all the all the attention. Um Garod, then you noticed you were noticed at um as a high potential athlete and still there's a lot of expectation on you. You mentioned to me before around training every day, like Christmas Day, etc. Mm. Um, could you tell us a bit about that, that regime and, and how, how brutal it was? You mentioned Ireland, not favourable conditions. There's five o'clock in the morning, I'm sure. Alarm clock goes off, lashing rain outside. What gets you out of bed? At that level, uh, with the insane amount of training that it was, I mean, looking back, it was it's a lot of training. Um, it's a lot of miles. It's a lot of mental, I guess, um, yeah, I mean, look, there was an enjoyable aspect to it too, don't, you know, don't get me wrong, but um, they had to cope with that volume of training and to get out there in the first place. The thing that got me out of bed was the fact that if I didn't do it, I would get my ass kicked and in front of everybody. And that was kind of, <laughs> that's the that's just the, the, you know, the bare bones of it. Like it's sort of, if you don't put in the work um, at that level, at that level of work, then you're not going to perform and you're just going to be, you know, um, trailing back behind everyone else and I just didn't want to do that because if you're going to put in that much effort to begin with you know you want to you want to get you want to get the goods yeah. you know so um yeah that was it's the fear of getting beaten I think that actually was the thing that would drive us out of tra- to go training every time and it's all also as well as sort of on a daily basis athletes are getting feedback on a daily basis right so so on an hourly basis if you want um and that can come from yourself can come from your teammates your coach your competitors, whoever you're, you're getting feedback all the time. So if you're doing a, a session and it's not that great, um, you've, you have the sense that you got to make up for it in the next one. And so that's, that was another driver as well. It's like that constant striving for perfection, driving towards a goal you're never going to achieve. Like you might get the perfect stroke, I don't know, a thousand times out of like hundreds of millions. You know what I mean? It's sort of like this, that's what's attractive about it. Like it's a, it's sort of the unattainable goal, you know, of, of elite sport. And then you're going towards something that may or may not come off. Like, cause you're, you're, you, you put all this effort into a pursuit that, you know, you get to the Olympics or the world championships and everyone there is just as good as you are and they want it as much as you do. And so that means that it's a huge gamble. Um, and so essentially being a sports person at that level, you're, you're a gambler you know and um that's what's exciting too you know what do you now know about perfection that you don't you didn't know back then perfection has its place <laughs> perfectionism has its place in the world and in sport it has its, has definitely has its place i mean it rewards perfectionism to a, a, a certain degree especially in training you've got to learn to let go of that perfectionism when you're in the heat of the moment in the race you've just got to do it but um the level of perfectionism in sport that's that people get rewarded for um doesn't necessarily translate very well into the real world because that level of perfectionism isn't required in a lot of roles and um athletes have a lot of trouble being happy with with doing enough um they need to do it perfectly and that, that, if that comes into every single strand of your life then you're not going to actually have a life so that's uh, athletes struggle a little bit with letting go of that perfectionism um especially when it's rewarded them for so long in sport and if I may go back for a moment to that uh, Chasing Perfection documentary by Netflix by Michael Johnson, he says about athletes, while this is a dream, this is not all of you as a person. How mm. does that relate to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I used to say when I was rowing was like, I, I my goal is to kind of get to the end um, and for people not to know me as a rower, to know to know me for some as as something else. And that, for me, that would have been a great benchmark to having led a, a good life because the rowing part was pretty good. And so if I'm known for something else other than rowing, then it means that I've done well at something else and it's sort of I've led a, a fairly good life, you know. So that's, um, yeah, it's a, I think it's a, it's a real risk when you put your eggs all in one basket and go all in. I mean, sometimes it's required. Um in some aspects like you'd know this in terms of running your own business and stuff like it's uh, required at some um moments but it's quite risky and it's quite risky from perf- um, from a number of, number of different perspectives um most importantly your mental and, and physical well-being um they're the two things that actually 
get the knock the first. And at the end of the day, <laughs> when push comes to shove, the most important thing to us is our health. And uh, that's it definitely in sport that's that's missing. Yeah. At, at high level sport anyway, um, the regard for your existence is, is nowhere near as important as winning a race. <laughs> <laughs> Could it fast forward to the night before the World Championship final? Yeah. What's going on in your head? What are you thinking about as you're lying there yeah. awake? Um, I generally slept pretty well before night before big races, but like th- that was great. But the, what was going on in my head before I actually fell asleep? You know, what I mean, for the days and the day before, like it's 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 hard. Like you're constantly, you your mind drifts towards the race like all the time. So you might be, you know, chatting to someone. Next thing you know, two seconds later, you're thinking about what might happen tomorrow. And you, what you do is you run through a lot of scenarios in your head. Visualization was a big part of my world when I was an athlete. So whenever I did training, I always visualize what it was going to be like in the middle of the race, what it was going to be like at the start, the finish, like where I was going to be, where my rivals were going to be, am I going to be coming through, am I going to be hanging on. And so all those things would, would, would be going through my head in like fully amped up mode. Um, you try and read a book and you've gone through four pages and you haven't read a single thing. It's just preoccupation, right? But it's just a trick becomes to um, accept that as part of the deal and not fight it and um, just go, yeah, this is horrible. Um, nerves are horrible. They're a horrible part of the process, but they're a necessary part. And if I didn't have nerves, I wouldn't perform tomorrow. And I used to always say, like, I think... I don't think there was one big race where I didn't like beforehand go out and say, I'm never doing this again. I'm never putting myself through this again. Like this is just hell, um, just mentally. Um, but then of course you do the race and you're back doing it next week. You know, in business, we're often told focus on a goal or have a clear outcome, which seems kind of anti to what we're seeing in sport. So we look at what say Joe Schmidt and with the Irish rugby team, big focus on looking after the process. Yeah. And the outcome will take care of itself. Mm. And you said you, you, you visualize a start, mid, and finish. Can you share a bit more about just breaking it down into into repeatable habits, etc., or just breaking down a process? Yeah, well, I mean, the goal. To, I mean, the goal to get to when you're sitting on a start line of a, of a big event is just the the goal is so you don't have to think. You just do it. You've done it so much. You're just doing it, and you're not even thinking about the process because it's so ingrained, you know. Um, but to get to that point got to do tons of process and do tons of drills and do tons of uh, miles um, to get to that spot we were really good at breaking it down into chunks like um, your whole season was broken down into chunks it was all done in cycles training cycles racing cycles everything so our goals were very much outlined and on paper a year out and Barring a disaster like an injury or whatever, um, you were going to just continue on that path and hopefully the formula is going to work out. Um, but yeah, that was the, I, I used to get lots of comfort uh, sitting on a start line knowing I had like done everything in training. The scary races were the ones where you were like, oh, is that injury going to come home to roost now, you know, or something. Just having all your ducks in a row was very important before you line up, you know, or else you're winging it and... We know that winging it in every sphere of life is 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 hard, like mentally, you know. <laughs> you can do it, but it might not be the best experience. Yeah. And uh, Corona, I've often got asked, you know, in terms of training, people say, oh, "What's the secret sauce? What's the secret? Uh, what's the secret training session you did?" There is not. It's just consistency, is it? Yeah, and there's also, I think, the secret sauce really. Like, I learned this as I went along in my career, and I wish I'd known it when I was younger. Was that like, you know, it's don't think about it too much. Like, it's just do it. Do the training. It's in the bag. If it's a crap session, it doesn't matter. It's in the bag as a session. It's not a waste of time. Just go on and do the next one. You know, not just to get too caught up in everyday life in terms of training. I mean, if you do a, a bad training session, then so. Like, yeah. whereas when I was younger, I was like, oh my God, I've done the bad training session. I must be, you know, and next thing you know, there's a pattern emerging of you doing a week rather than a day of bad training because it's in your head. Just learning to let go of the bad sessions and see it as part of the puzzle is that's for me that's um, that was a great lesson when I learned that learned to just let go it was fantastic yeah my my performances went much better. <laughs> Grace, can you uh, tell us about the feeling when you crossed the line and became a world champion? 
Yeah, actually, a very interesting feeling because like we were, we hadn't lo- we hadn't lost a race all year, um, and so we were favourites to win it, and we wa- we went into the final as it was the quickest time uh, from qualification, and like all the everything was there. Like if we lost, we should have been shot, you know, like that kind of thing. That was the mentality we had going in. It's like if we lose this, it means we've broken mentally or something like that. So the pressure, there was a bit of pressure from that regard on a personal level to go like this is our moment to win it and it's all here. I just got to go out and do the race. We just got to go out and execute it. That's it. Um, So the feeling I had when we crossed the line, it was a tough enough battle to hold it on the course, but with like 100 meters to go, I knew we were going to win. It's like I didn't have a feeling of joy or anything. It was just a primary feeling was relief. And I just basically curled up into a little ball in the boat and it's just like the 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 whole moment just rushed through me in the form of just, I was capitulated, like physically. I couldn't move. I was just head on the oar. Um, yeah, it took me a little while to come around. But it was, uh, yeah. And then it was like a, a few days later, really, when it kicked in that we had won it. Um, but I was able to enjoy like the national anthem and the flag and all that kind of stuff. That was cool. But it was, yeah, relief was the primary feeling, yeah. You got to wear the podium pants as a, yeah. as a bit of a They didn't have podium, podium <laughs> pants back then. Yeah, we just went out in our... <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, for someone uh, who had never experienced that, just to, 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 to hear about that, what that felt like. And when you collapse over line, you sit into a ball. Most of us probably thinking, oh, it's just euphoria, but it's, it's relief. Yeah, it was relief. And it was a surprising f- emotion, actually. Um, and... Uh, that stuff you were talking about earlier on, what's it like the night before thinking about it? I mean, that's ha- that's happening for weeks and days beforehand. So that when that's finally stopped, when the record is stopped in your head, that's a nice feeling as well. Grod, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to bring you forward then to 2005. And um, along with Kieran Lewis, you attempt to row the Atlantic Ocean in a 23-foot rowing boat. After 40 days of sea, having endured two tropical storms and a hurricane on the way, your boat's pitched like 10 meter wave and you're adrift 900 miles from landfall you're in the water it's great <laughs> <laughs> tell us what's going through your head then i'll take you a step back and say that about how we ended up in there in the first place so we got as you said rolled by a big like i don't know what size it was but like roughly 10 meters uh maybe a bit smaller maybe nine meters but it was like the angle of it was like you know we'd been in rough water for days and we we were under pressure a little bit in terms of we nearly got capsized a bunch of times but then this one was coming towards and i was like yeah we're definitely gonna get hit by this it pitch pulled us so it went stern to bow and like i was tossed out of the boat and basically i thought that was it so i was held underwater for like a good period of time i can't tell you how long but in that situation you're taking kind of panic breaths you know like so i probably just got a you know enough air in um to last me a little bit of time but that rare was running out big time. I just was like, this is it. Like, I'm going to die now for sure. This is it. Um, and I was just totally surprised that I, 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 I didn't. I popped up above the surface and then the boat was there and like it was um, upside down. And those boats are designed to self-right. We had all the, all the doors closed, so everything was fine. And my mate was inside and the Kieran was inside in the cabin. Um, and it wasn't rewriting. And I was like, that's a bit weird um got and i got to the boat um and i couldn't see him anywhere and so then i was going down underneath to actually um find him and uh then he popped up and what had happened to him was that the the cabinet actually crushed in the wave and it broke up so where he was sleeping got flooded with water and so he had to wait for the whole thing to fill up before he, he could uh swim out so we had these two very different experiences of the capsize mine was like we're dead. I can't believe we're alive. His was like, hang on, I've just woken up on the ceiling of the cabin. You know, what's going on in the water flooding in? So um, it, that was very interesting, actually. From a, This is a, one of the biggest lessons I learned on it was that in that moment when we capsized, I was held underwater. For me, that was zero. Like, that was death. That was, it was over. And the fact that we were still alive, I was like, we have a chance. We have at least a one percent chance of surviving. I mean, the sea was huge. It was, it was just like huge waves everywhere, windy. I mean, it, the sea was angry. Um, and we were in the middle of nowhere, right? So the chances of getting out of it were were pretty slim. Um, but I felt after surviving the capsize, we had a chance. 
And so I was quite positively, kind of positive in our in my mindset. Uh, even though we were clinging now to a piece of wood in the middle of the ocean, whereas he had gone to sleep with a fully functioning boat, and now he was in the water, and his experience was a bit more realistic. It was like, oh, we're screwed, you know, that we're this isn't good. And I thought, no, 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 it's good, it's fine. So we had these two opposing things going on, um, kind of attitudes to our predicament, which I think was very healthy because it curbed my enthusiasm and my, my positiveness and then my positiveness rubbed off on him. So, uh, I think that was one of the key factors in keeping us alive actually. Um, and then I was thinking about after that going, wow, in all walks of life that, you know, those two opposing forces are actually good. Um, and we should maybe seek out people to work with who do challenges in that way. But anyway, it's an aside. Um, we were in the water, um, and basically we went in, we got very calm. Uh, we did everything we were told. We did a sea survival course in Wicklow, actually, Wicklow swimming pool. <laughs> and uh, and it taught us everything about how to deploy life raft, how to set off flares, how to survive in the thing. And literally we did everything like clockwork. It was like we were robots just doof, doof, doof. And, uh, and then we just jumped into the life raft and... Um, kind of held on to our sinking boat for as long as we could and uh and then the night fell and it was like how long can we spend in this and i'd actually read a book um before i left about a guy who spent 72 days in one of those rafts so i knew at least there was like what 36 days each uh, <laughs> <laughs> that we could spend <laughs> before one of us would have to <laughs> you know um, but you know I'd learned all about um, how to catch fish and skin them and dry them and so look I was fairly confident we were going to survive in the life raft um, but the trouble was it was filling with water every time we got hit by a big wave because we were still in the middle of a, uh, a tropical storm and the waves were ginormous and like we could hear them coming from ages off and every time we got hit by one we were like this could capsize us it could have capsized this kind of thing. It kept filling with water. Then we had to bail, bail the water out and then wait for the next one kind of thing. So it was like a pre pretty hairy. Um, we, were only, we were only in that situation for 10 hours, which is like really we were expecting four days. So we were quite relieved that the, a ship actually was, was alerted to our predicament and came to our area, um, which sounds fine but when you're in a little life raft and you've got a 250 meter long by 775 meter high ship that's there to rescue you you're like now we've got another problem we've got to get onto that bloody thing <laughs> in the middle of the night so in the days or weeks after that did you think i'm bulletproof uh, I, I could do anything or was it a, a wake-up call or a, a new lease of life um it was i was just still pinching myself that i was still around like I still do to this day, go like that. What am I doing here? I should like seriously. Sometimes I go like that. Was so lucky that we got out of that because at the time in Ireland it was um, it was like January, and in Ireland it was like a two fishing boats went down, and like all the fishermen were killed in the same week that we survived the middle of the Atlantic. You know, and it's just like how lucky were we? So, but I I kind of approached my assimilation back into society a bit wrong. Like I kind of, I just said, okay, I'm just going to continue out my life the way it was. Um, back to normal, no big deal. Um, whereas in fact, like everything had changed, you know, like everything was different. You know, I never looked at rowing in the same way again mm -hmm. after that, you know. Um, life, it, it was like racing boats fast just didn't cut it anymore in terms of importance. Um and I guess I started to turn my direction, my my direction towards being more helpful. I know that sport has its role in terms of, um, you know, inspiring people and and things like that. But um, I felt I had been probably too into my own pursuits a bit too much and not giving enough. And um, that's kind of really what hit home out in the Atlantic uh, when we were in the life raft. And the other thing was that I, I also said to myself, I haven't had enough fun. Um, I was just, a, you know, I was training really hard from the age of 12 and I was, you know, I never drank when I was, you know, I never did the teenage stuff, right, or any of that kind of thing, which is fine. That was my choice. But I felt on the ocean, I was like going, oh, if we get out of this, I think I'm going to be a bit more kind to myself and have a bit more crack, you know, um, as in the fun, not the... Um, <laughs> And so that's what I did, you know, like I retired from the Olympics and I went to the next Olympics 2008 and, um, and I knew that was my last one. And then, yeah, 
been having fun ever since. It's been great. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a lovely segue, Garoid, into uh, your new focus around when you set up Crossing the Line. So what inspired you to set up Crossing the Line and now Athlete Transition Advantage? I guess really the thing that kicked it off was my own experience of transition out of the sport because, um, you know, I was really well set up, I thought, for transition out. Wanted to retire. That's a big one. You know, I definitely knew I was finished. Never wanted to row again. I had a degree uh, from Trinity College in natural science uh, geography. And um, so I had loads of outside interests. I had good networks. Um, I wasn't afraid to do stuff, you know. So it was all laid out for a good transition. And um, I actually, one of the things on the Atlantic as well that I promised myself is that I always wanted to try acting and mm. do acting and stuff. And but I could never try it because I was always training and tra traveling. And so I couldn't even do like amateur stuff because I was always training. So I said, OK, I'm going to audition for drama school. If I get in, I'll do it. And so I went to London, I auditioned for two schools and I got into one. Then I, I said, OK, I'm going to do it. So I took it, treated it as a kind of a year off, you know, of life and get into drama. And I mean, what was good about that drama school was it's just as regimented as rowing. Like it's just you're down there 9 a.m. stretching, you know, in your black clothes. You're just like getting drilled like it's really good I was it was like a sponge like I had this real because in rowing I felt like I had for every little incremental um improvement at that point in my career I had to like put so much in whereas in the acting it was like I was new to it all so it was like a sponge and that was a great relief and then you know did this school thing um did like five or six plays loved it uh, great buzz but then I finished that course and realized that, like, yeah, I need to earn a crust and I'm not going to earn a crust on the stage in London. And I haven't reached the level where I've like I want to I, I can, you know, be a, um, a TV or, or, or a film actor. And I wasn't that good. I have seen your profile pics. They look very good. Yeah, the pics are fine. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing, I guess what, what happened was I, I, I had a realization that if I want to be a really good actor, I've got to put the same amount of effort into it as I did my rowing and I just was like I'm sick of that like I'm sick of that intensity I just want to take a break from that intensity for a while and so when as soon as I did that I just went all right so what are you going to do then and it was just like <laughs> like it was literally like a sledgehammer hit me across the head because I went all in with I go all in with everything right <laughs> so I didn't really give that much I kind of thought it would come to me like that I have this light bulb moment and I'd be like okay this is what you're going to do next and when that light bulb wasn't switching on I was like literally my whole world crumbled because like suddenly I went I couldn't identify myself with anything um and that had a huge impact like completely unexpectedly and then I was just like going geez if I've experienced this with all the stuff that I'm doing and that I've done and that I want to do and what about the guys who literally didn't have anything who, who got retired not of their own choice who ended up, like, who had no nothing going for them. Like, what the hell are they doing? And then I started to do some research. And it was like suicides, depression, drug addictions, prison, like carnage in, this, in the post-sporting uh, world thing. And I Googled, um, I expected to find like a Beyond Blue type thing, mm. you know, where I could get on and and um, find someone to talk to, like a chat room, you know. Was, and I thought it would be something like that for sport. And I was like, sport athlete transition whatever nothing it was just like crickets and uh i was that's when i got the idea first i was like wow it hasn't been done maybe maybe i could maybe i should set that up that was 2009 2010 and and, and i was like ah no screw sport i don't want to get back involved in sport again i'm done with that life um and i went off and started an events business i did that for two years and then i kind of came back to that idea i was like going and no one's done that yet. And then it started to nag at me. And I was like, but if I don't do it, I'm going to be pissed off. You know, um, I'll be on my deathbed going, you should have done that. Cause like you saw the problem and you, you didn't do it, you know? So I, that's the reason why I got into it. Um, so I, I started to get skilled up in the area, do a bit of work. And I worked with the West Sydney Wanderers for a while, worked at N Swiss as the athlete kind of welfare person. Saw what I thought worked, what didn't work, and then I just set up our own thing. I thought the independent space for, for athletes is very important, like something that's away from their federation or sports team, where they can be more open and have no, like, um, I guess, stigma around reaching out for help because they do it in secret through our site. No one, no one knows they're doing it. Um, I thought that was 
a powerful resource to have. Um, yeah, so that was that was kind of the idea, really. And and I guess once I had the idea and I could see a way of helping, I couldn't unsee it. And that was it. <laughs> Girls, could you tell our listeners something about the levels of depression, suicide, and and as you said, drug abuse after sport? Yeah, it's um, it's hard to get numbers, right? But um, for instance, the Olympics, the Olympians, there's like over 120 Olympians who've committed suicide, including gold medalists. You know, it's not just like it's it's the full spectrum of people. Like, I mean, that's a, that's 120 over 120 since like World War Two. You know, it's a lot. Um, uh, but it's sort of the depression thing is interesting because there's no place for depression in sport, you know, and that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the problem that we face is like, of course there has to be a place for depression in sport. It's part of the game. Like some sports actually, um, some pursuits actually are, are, are cause depression, like, uh, long distance endurance sports, the level of training that you do, the, the depletion, the kind of toll it takes in your body actually does have a toll, takes a toll in your brain as well. And you can go through blocks of time being depressed and not actually acknowledging it or actually knowing you're depressed, but you actually, you are depressed. So there's just an anti culture in, in sport of, 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 um, of owning up to your problems and being self, being self-reflective in a way that's not to do with your performance. So you can be self-reflective in terms of, um, you know, my my rowing stroke wasn't great today, or my finishes weren't great, or I wasn't kicking well. You can be self-reflective in that way, like amazingly self-reflective. But then if someone asks you, like, so what about you? Like, how are you feeling? You're like, Ugh, I can't go near that. I'm fine. You know? Um, and that's just not the truth. And I believe that that's the, where the biggest increases in performances can be made these days. If, if that mental health aspect is embraced a bit more and seen as a performance element, then we're going to, first of all, the athlete's going to benefit from their performance, but also it's going to help break down the stigma of mental health and sport because um, now it's just seen as a detriment. And, um, you know, lots of coaches won't touch an athlete who will, um, who owns up to having a mental health issue. And that's, that's a missed opportunity. And in our previous conversations, you spoke around your passion around helping athletes, younger athletes as they prepare for, yeah. for, a, for a life of professional sport. Can you tell us a bit more about what you're doing there, Grod? Yeah, so we're 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 um, developing a program this year called Groundwork, and basically it comes from the idea that um, you know lots of athletes will go through their career and they're going to come to the end and they'll have a some sort of existential crisis. They'll have an identity crisis. Something's going to happen, right? Um, there's some people are just not going to avoid that. It's going to happen at extreme levels with people who who haven't had the education or the the, the preparedness. It's going to happen at a, a, a low level for people who are a bit more self-aware. The stuff I've learned since I finished rowing about myself, I wish I'd known when I was rowing. Like, 100%, it would have made me a better athlete. It would have made me maybe go for another Olympic Games, possibly. Um, but I didn't know it, so I, so I didn't em- employ those things. You often learn this stuff after the fact. And I, that's the same for a lot of elite athletes. They go say the same thing. I wish I'd known this when I was competing. When you're in the bubble of the sport, you actually are so going 100 miles an hour that you don't really care about anything or anyone except the performance. And taking on on board education about or even pursuing something outside the sport is really hard to get yourself into that mindset unless that's been ingrained into you from an early age. So I see that one of the remedies for athlete transition and helping us to to reduce the the horror show that's happening is for us to, to educate the kids when they're before they become obsessed. Um, so well, no, not before becoming, but when they're beginning to realize their obsession. So one of their heroes going into a school with this really good syllabus, like a workshop, two hour workshop with them, with their parents and saying, I'm your, like, essentially I'm your hero. Uh, I've achieved at the sport. This is the path that I walked. I wish I had done this. You need to do this as well or else this might happen. And when I was 14, I would, like, if if my hero walked into my classroom at 14, I would literally would have done anything they said. If he said, like, you got to, you know, eat nails to be a good <laughs> rower, I would have done it, like, because um, kids are impressionable, right? So I feel that that's where we can make a big impact in bringing or helping this issue, you know, um, become less and less. 
So as coaches and athletes, we're always looking for the 1%. So you believe that's where the 1% is to be got? There's 1% is to be got in terms of mental health yeah. awareness. Yeah, I, for sure. I think it's uh, maybe more. I think there's a lot more. I think it's, um, there's a, it's an untapped resource. I think you're getting a couple of athletes coming through now who are quite, who do a lot of mental health um, practices and are quite open about it. Um, and I think that's the only way it's going to change. And then to get, you know, for, for mental health to become accepted and cool in the sporting arena. Um, that's something, what, you haven't done your meditation today? Are you crazy? You know, like, <laughs> that, 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 would be, that would be great if, if that became the norm. So you're you're going to be a game changer in that space, Grode. Well, hopefully, you know. <laughs> well, you know, like just kind of bit by bit, you know. And Grode, uh, do you notice any difference between how female and male athletes handle transition? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, it's complicated because um, women are better at talking about stuff than men are. So quite often when we're doing workshops with athletes, and if we have a, a, a room for the males, it's like it's, it can be tricky getting them to talk and getting the first person to talk. Um, with women, they just talk. And so what we do is we get, sometimes get women and men into the same room and the, 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 the women just kick it off and the men follow. Um, so yeah, women are better at talking about stuff than men are amongst each other. You know, they are just better at it. Like not just in sport, but in every, every aspect. Um, but the challenge women have is that a lot of them finish their sporting careers and then they go and have a baby. They start a family straight away. And what happens there is then they're consumed for like five years up until when the kid goes to school. So they have their passion and purpose as their kid or their kids, whatever it is, for that five years. The kid goes to school and then they have the like, what am I going to do now moment. Um, and that's that can kick in like five years after. And by then, like all the resources that are open to them are gone. You know, the, um, they've been out of the workforce for ages they haven't decided they've been out of the workforce because of their sport and then they're out of the workforce because of their kid. Um, so that can be really tricky for them, you know? Um, so that's what we try and do as well. Like is, um, uh, try and help them cope a bit as well with that unique, um, challenge, you know? Um, it's a tricky one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Gerard, what, what are some of the, the small little habits that you do now on a regular basis to keep you going in terms of personal development or well-being? You mentioned meditation. What are your rituals or day-to-day habits? Um, meditation's kind of like in and out. I'll be perfectly honest. Like um, I, I tell people to do it all the time and I'm just really bad at doing it myself. <laughs> um, I know the benefits of it. It's just like uh, I, that's where I need to improve. But uh, I... I started doing um, cycling again. Actually, it's one of the challenges I ha- one of my main challenges of the transition was the fact that I was so easy to drop what I was doing. I was I used to train like a lunatic and I was really into it and then suddenly I stopped and I became really okay with being stopped. And that went on for like five years. I was just lazy and no motivation to train. As soon as I go training and I hit the pain part, I'm like, why? There's no need to do this. Like, you know, it's just done. You, um, come, you come to Sydney and you live in the best, one of the best cities in the world. And you put on the Sydney Stone? Did that? Did that happen? Oh, I didn't actually put on the Sydney Stone. Maybe I did. And yeah, maybe I did. But I did swimming. I've done lots of stuff. Like so, I did. I did stuff like you know, I do. I I trained towards doing the Bondi to Bronte or something. I did that, and then I never swam again after. <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, I do a lot of cycling. Um, just solo cycling. You know, long distance solo cycling. I enjoy that. Um, but in daily practice, um, I. Oh, yeah, I do, actually. I do have a daily practice thing that I started, and I used to scoff at this, um, and it's actually gratitude. So I used to, and someone said to me, like, about gratitude, yeah, you know, you got to bring gratitude into your life, and I was kind of like, yeah. This is when I was an athlete kind of thing. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, kind of, and then just, like, you know, didn't do it. I really was like a um, bacon and cabbage kind of guy, <laughs> like, in terms of that, you know, I was quite open to stuff, but only if it, if it impacted my performance, like, if it made me go fast, or helped me go fast, I'd do it, if it didn't, I'd give it a crack, and then I'd be like, nah, gone, and so, like, gratitude would have fallen into that category, um, uh, but then, the practicing the gratitude, I find that um, it actually has a really good, uh, positive impact on your mental health, because if you're having a crap day, for whatever reason, I mean, it could be for a multitude of reasons. If if you just look around you and look at, it could be personal, friends could be 
family, tons of people are going through way worse than you are. Like, and recognizing that, um, actually being grateful for what you have is actually, I know it sounds twee, but it's and so simple, but it's, it's, it gives you a lift. Like it really does. And, um, so I try and do that. Actually, it comes naturally because we all have a whinge, right? Like during the day, there's one moment when you always have a bit of a whinge or you might check in and go like, what the hell am I doing? Um, but that's when I, that's when the gratitude piece will kick in. Definitely. And it's the one thing actually that I, I've, um, I've noticed actually it's had a bit of an impact. Um, the other thing that I've done is I've given up drinking this year. I've given up forever, but I was, um, I, I used to drink a lot and I used to like, you know, insidious type drinking like i wouldn't go out and get smashed or anything but i'd like be you know getting tucked into a bottle of wine at home and next thing you know home, it's all the second one's open like you know that kind of thing and and you wake up with a hangover next day and uh, it's just it was just so easy to do and i just decided like last year like all right i'm just going to kick it for a year and so yeah i'm three months in going strong <laughs> are, you, are you counting down the days no i'm not actually um i haven't counted days yet um, but, uh, I, I've gone so far now, I've gone three months in that if I stop now, it'll just be like, I'll just won't forgive myself. But it's interesting noticing the differences. Like people said, are you going to notice a massive difference in your physical, um, health I've, and your energy levels? I haven't found that, but I found massive difference in my mental health. Like I was just walking around in a good mood for no reason. Like, and that's just kind of not me, you know? So, um, yeah. Good on it's you. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> you might even inspire me to give it up for a year myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Nice segue into uh, I'd love to ask a few questions around legacy. I'm going to start off again. A question from my 10 year old daughter, Alana. So, Alana said, If you could go back in time, what advice would you give your 10 year old self? Don't start rowing. And <laughs> 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 uh, no, that's a joke. That's a joke. I'm delighted I started rowing. I'm really, I'm, I, I'm very grateful to that sport and what it did for me right but uh tell my, my 10 year old self i would say to myself like slow down like don't don't d stuff doesn't have to be everything doesn't have to be done tomorrow like rome doesn't have to be built in a day it's like it's things take time and just slow down and make make the right decisions you know take the time to make the right decisions and don't rush it um impulsivity is great it is i mean it is a good great trait to have and i definitely have it but at the same time it's really good to uh slow down and you know look at your options and always give yourself options yeah that's what i'd say and what do you want to be known for uh it actually goes back to this point that we were talking about earlier but i want to be i'd like to be known as um someone who's more than a rower but i think i would like i'd like to be known as somebody who uh was reliable in terms of um helping being being helpful to people um yeah that that's that's kind of the main thing kind of like one of the things that came out of my atlantic experience was that whole thing about being less selfish in in my life in terms of what I, whatever i do next and yeah i would like to be known as someone who gave a lot and if i may say i think you're being really brave and taking on something that's really challenging and sharing openly about your own experience and really wanting to create something amazing so Take my hat off to you, Gerard. Cheers. And very best of <laughs> luck for the rest of the journey. Gerard, what impact do you want to make for the rest of your life? Within the sporting context, I think I would like to make an impact in this area, like with transition and mental health. I think that mental, the mental health, if we can, if I can make an impact in getting it to, to reduce the stigma around it, that would be good. Um, and with the transition, I would really like to create something and we are at the moment creating something that is a really, really useful, practical athlete transition tool that people go, right, this is going to help me. Um, I know it's going to help me. It's going to be practical and that when they finish the program, they'll say, wow, that, that made it, that made the difference. Um, that for me. If I can, if we can build this and create that, um, I'd be very happy because I mean, it would be, it would be curing a big pain, you know? So Gerard, if anyone's listening to us out here, how can anyone help you? Well, there's lots of ways people can help with crossing the line. For instance, it's a charity. Um, so we have, uh, all our fundraising goes into 
rolling out the, pro the kids program for the kids education and also for helping crisis situations with um athletes who are really in the doldrums um so we're always doing fundraising and we've got a couple of fundraising activities coming up this year we've got a fundraising dinner on the 31st of may uts um and we have a fundraising bike ride in august so a three-day tour crossing the line tour and um if you like cycling and want to do that do that and and have a bit of fun at night we're going to have musicians and athletes talking about their journey and fireside chats and all that kind of stuff then uh check out our website crossinglinesport.com and you get all the details but yeah for, that, that would be a great way to get involved and help and um so anyone can join that cycle anyone can join it yeah yeah awesome good inspiration Dave. fully supported fully yeah. supported by on tour that's right shout out to kent williams if he's listening absolutely um and so that's a good incentive for maybe to give up drink and to get back on the bike <laughs> I haven't been on a bike in a while <laughs> Garoad, uh, one of my dear friends uh, john Logue, shared this with me uh, life is a collection of experiences collect well so i'm going to take you forward to when you're on your deathbed you're watching a highlight reel of your life what's on that highlight reel it's funny on the highlight will definitely be the what could be seen as a low light with the with the atlantic capsize that will definitely be there because that literally was when i touched death um so and we actually myself and Kieran, the guy I did it with, we actually we always we always call each other on the day we capsized and say happy second birthday. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that will definitely be a highlight and getting out of that, you know, uh, in one piece. Um, you know, the rowing stuff, I think, is I wouldn't pinpoint any one thing. I just think the whole rowing thing as a package um, would be a highlight. And I think, you know that thing about you say about collecting experiences like i just want to keep collecting them like and and i think that traveling and being open to new stuff is like something i always want to continue doing for the rest of my life um i really i really believe that's the key to to life and you know, that's kind of the way i want to pursue it and um yeah so hopefully there'll be more highlights to come but i think yeah <laughs> i i think that one for sure will be one of them yeah. thank you girl just before we finish one last question is there any other question I should have asked you today? Uh, well, you never asked me about my love life, <laughs> which, which is, which is another, which is another uh, big part of my transition because um, because I'm gay. So being a gay sportsman is wasn't the kind of most um, comfortable of uh, things. So um, at the beginning, right? So uh, yeah, that's that's been part of my transition and part of my journey out of sports. So yeah, it's uh, a big one. <laughs> Thanks, Grod. Just want to say thank you very much for being our guest today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting today. Thank you for sharing so openly around your, your personal journey, uh, your transition, and most excitedly, the experiences that lie ahead for you. So oh, I've had great fun. Keep keep continuing to collect well. Yeah, we'll have some great podcasts in the future. Karamagat. <laughs>